Virgin's Old Time Radio. We have a cracker of a show for you tonight, gals and gents. Wash your black heads, sniff some borax, and enjoy this episode of Suspense entitled The After Dinner Story. This is the Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. With us in Hollywood tonight as star is Mr. Otto Kruger, whose career on the screen and on the stage has afforded him precisely equal number of appearances as a character on the right and on the wrong side of the law. Whether the man Mr. Kruger portrays tonight is devil or saint, we shall leave for you to judge when the play is over. It is called After Dinner Story. The author is Cornell Woolrich, the radio adapter Robert L. Richards. And so with the performance of Otto Kruger as Mr. Hardecker, who told this extraordinary After Dinner Story, we again hope to keep you in suspense. Mr. Hardecker's residence. I, I believe I'm expected for dinner. Your name, sir? Uh, Ken Shaw is my name. Very good, sir. Mr. Hardecker? Mr. Kenshaw, sir. Ah, number one. Good evening, Mr. Kenshaw. Is this where Mr. Hardecker lives? My name is Lambert. Mr. Hardecker? Mr. Lambert. Number two. Uh, my name is Prendergast. I think I... Uh, Mr. Hardecker? Mr. Prendergast. Number three. Mackenzie's the name. Mr. Hardecker? Mr. Mackenzie. Number four. One, two, three, four. So you're all here, gentlemen? Yes. yes. Then suppose we go into dinner. And after dinner, I shall tell you why you are here, what I have in mind. In fact, I shall tell you in the form of a story. A sort of after-dinner story. Well, gentlemen, did you enjoy your dinner? Yeah, it was oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, if you'll excuse me for just a moment, I have certain instructions to give the servants, and after that I shall rejoin you. I well, shan't well, be long. Well, yeah. Certainly. Well, what did that crack mean? Certain instructions to the servants. How should I know? I, I don't like the looks of the whole thing. Why all the mystery? Well, I suggest that you have patience, Mr. Prendergast. Mr. Hardecker clearly intends to tell us in his own good time. Yeah. And and another thing. I don't eat in those fancy Park Avenue joints as a room myself, but I've seen them in the movies. They always pass the food around to everybody. They don't just don't bring it out of the kitchen already on your plate and just hand it to you. Well, what possible difference can that make? Well, I don't know, but I know it ain't right. Oh, None of it's right. Why does a man invite four perfect strangers to dinner? What is this thing he, he has in mind for us he keeps talking about? Well, all I know, he says he'll make it worth our while, and I can use a little of that worth your while stuff the way business has been lately. Obviously, the connection between us is that we were all in that elevator a year ago. Oh, what of it? There's no mystery about that. The police cleared that up the very next day. Maybe Mr. Hardiker doesn't think so. The Sorry to have kept you, gentlemen. Now, suppose we get down to business. Uh, Mr. Hardiker, none of us wish to seem rude, but we were just wondering what this business is all about. You have had, uh, you had come to the obvious conclusion, of course, that it has to do with my son? Well, yeah. I don't see why we're, uh, we're all sorry, naturally, but that's all over and done yes, with. Yes, uh, almost. But there are one or two little details that I thought you gentlemen might help me to clarify. Oh, sure. Oh, well. Fine. Well, then, if you don't mind, I know you must remember most of it, but it's almost a year ago. I'd like to go over the whole story from the beginning. Well, that's all right. Well, it was just about, just before five in the afternoon on August 30th of last year, 
when the matter which concerns us here this evening had its beginning. And on that day, and at that time, all four of you, perfect strangers, who had never seen each other before in your lives, found yourselves, for personal and business reasons of your own, on various floors of the Norfolk building in midtown Manhattan, waiting for the express elevator to take you to the lobby. The first passengers were on the 21st floor. 21. Going down, please. Express car. Going down. There are now three men in the elevator. The operator, Mr. Kenshaw and Mr. Lambert, who had gotten on at the 21st floor. 18. Going down, please. Face the doors, please. Going down. Now there are five men in the car. Mr. Prendergast and Mr. McKenzie had entered the elevator at the 18th floor. 15. Express car to the lobby. Go on down, please. Say hello to Eleanor for me. You bet. Bye, Dad. Bye. Six men in the elevator. The last to enter, I had accompanied to the elevator door myself. He was my son. These things drop pretty fast. Too fast for me. Hey, this baby is moving. Hey, look! You can't stop it. We're out of What's control. Stop it. Look out, we're going to hit. Oh, get off. 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 Anybody, uh, anybody got a match? I think my leg's broken. Get me out of here. I got a wife and kids. Somebody get me out of here. Get me Shut out of here. Shut up a minute, can't you? You're not the only one with a wife and kids. Has anybody got a match? I've got to get this door open. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have it. I'm able to suffocate in here. These things are practically airtight. Yeah. Ah. Where's the operator? Uh, operator? He's over here. I, I can feel the braid on his coat against my hand. Oh. Hey, what about it, bud? You've got a match so I can see what I'm doing here? Uh, hey, operator. He's he's dead. Dead? Uh, Why doesn't somebody come? What's the matter with him? Why did they come? Pipe down, will you? Pipe down. There. There, I got it. Now we'll get a little air anyway. Oh. There's a light up there somewhere. Yeah. I can hear voices. There, you hear them? Help! Help! Say, there's no use yelling your head off. They know we're down here. I wish my leg didn't hurt so bad. Oh, let's see. Uh, Try wrapping your shirt around it tight. May stop some of the pain. Thanks. Easy. Uh, Now what? Nothing. Just sit and wait. That's all. Why don't they hurry? What are they waiting for? Why don't they hurry? Take it easy. Take it easy. You could be worse off. Worse off? Yeah. Like this poor guy, the operator. He's dead. And so you waited. Six men, five living, one dead. I know how it must have been for all of you, the minutes dragging by there in the darkness with nothing to do but wait. How's your leg? Better. How long do you suppose... We've been down here. That's hard to tell. Maybe they think we're all dead. Maybe they're just taking their time. Don't worry. They heard you hollering all right. But I heard... The the poor guy. I I wonder if he had any kids. The operator? Yeah. I I often wondered sometimes what would happen if one of these things ever slipped. Well, now you know. I'll never ride in one again. So he's going to walk up 68 stories to the rainbow room. I don't go to the rainbow room. Oh, I'm certainly glad my father didn't get on this car with me. He was going to, but he changed his mind. Wish I'd changed my mind. You know, if I hadn't gone back to make a phone call, I'd have been on another car. What's the use of wishing? Okay, it's happened, are. and here we are. Yeah. Listen, there they are up there. They're going to get us out. Yeah. Hello. Hello up there. Yeah, yeah, we're coming to you. Take it easy. Hurry, can't you hurry? Hurry. Yeah, we uh, will hurry. Anybody hurry? Yeah, one guy's dead. Oh. We'll be through to you in a minute. Okay, Roger, let it on now. <laughs> 
Look, look at that light up there. Settling torches. Yeah. They're gonna cut a hole in the roof. What a racket. Oh, I'm nearly deaf already. Listen, you guys. We're coming through, see? Watch out for spots. Shut your eyes and stand back against the wall. Okay. I never knew those things made so much noise. It's because we're closed in. What was that? I don't know. I I thought I heard somebody holler. Yeah, so did I. Must have been one of those guys up above. Those sparks are enough to blind you. Well, don't look at them. They will blind you. One went right by in front of my face, right across the car. (laughs) They couldn't have. They're dropping down. Did you see it? It was awful bright. Oh, just a reflection. Don't look at it. I guess, I guess they got it cut through. Phew, yeah. I couldn't have stood much more of that. They're pulling off the top. It won't be long now. All right. Stand clear down there. I'm going to jump down. Hey, cop. And no cop ever looked lovelier. All right. Pass them ropes down now. Okay, hold it. All right. Who's first now? Who's the worst hurt of you all? How about this fella? And that's the operator. He's dead. Hey, look. Those other two guys have both passed out. Yeah, shocking. Yes. Officer, I've got to get out of here. I feel pretty hey, bad. Hold I... your horses. There's nothing wrong with you. But I... That man's got a broken leg. Then. Who's got a broken leg? I... I have, I think. All right. Can you sit in this rope sling here? I'll try. Now, hang on with both your hands. I'll be all right. Okay. Pull him up. Well... So long, fellas. Take care of that leg. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. My name's Lambert. Mine's Mackenzie. Maybe we'll run into each other sometime. Yeah. Well, so long. All right, let me have that rope now. Well, who's next now? Maybe you better take those two guys that passed out. They might be hurt. Why, sure. How about this young fella? Sure. uh, He got a little blood on him, hasn't he? He has that. Glass from the light fixtures, I guess. Well, I don't think it's serious. Hmm. You don't, eh? No, he seemed to be all right. Well, whatever he seemed to be, he's not now. This man is dead. Dead? Oh, but he can't be. Look here, my lad, you don't seem to realize that you've come through a pretty serious accident. I know, but he can't be dead. We heard him talking just a few minutes ago, isn't that right? Yes, I heard him. Well, sure, he was talking to us here in the dark. He said something about being glad his father wasn't on this elevator. I can't help what he said or what you heard him say. This man is dead. My son, who had survived the original accident without apparent injury, was dead. You gentlemen were more fortunate. You lived. Five days later, you four met again. It was a police headquarters. About 2.30 on a Friday afternoon. The last to arrive was Mr. Lambert. In here, Mr. Lambert. Thanks. Hello there. Hi, fellas. Hey, how's the leg? Pretty good. Mr. Lambert? That's right. I'm Chief Inspector McMahon. How do? You'll uh, just take a seat there. Yes, sir. Well, we all here now? Mr. Kenshaw, yes. Mr. Pendergast, yes. Mr. McKenzie, That's Mr. Me. Lambert. Yes, sir. Well, now, as I told each of you over the phone, I won't keep you very long. I just wanted to ask a few routine questions about that business of the elevator the other day. Well, what's the matter? Something phony about it? Uh, not for our money. It's an open and shut case. Suicide. Suicide? Yeah. You mean the operator wanted to bump himself off so he could... No, 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 no. Not the operator. He died of a fractured skull. Young uh, Hardiker we're interested in. His father's been raising a row, so we said we'd investigate, but... uh... I still don't get it. Wesley Hardiker was killed by a thirty-two caliber bullet through the heart. What? You couldn't have... You mean he he killed himself right in that car with all of us... Hmm? What else? He wasn't shot when he walked in, and he was dead when we brought him out. Unless uh, one of you killed him. Oh, no. Any of you know him? No. No. Well, then there you are. Even the father had to admit that as far as he knew, his son had never seen any of you before in his life. But it don't make sense. What don't make sense? Well, I mean, a guy shooting himself in an elevator with four other people that nobody didn't even know it. Did uh, any of you hear the shot? Not before they started the blowtorches. I could swear to that. Couldn't have heard one anyway. Yeah, you see? Hey, wait a minute. Did you hear something? No. But Mackenzie, remember I said when I was laying on the floor of the elevator, 
that I thought I saw a spark from one of those blowtorches that went across the car instead of falling down? That's right. Anybody else see anything? The blowtorches were absolutely blinding. You couldn't see a... Uh, how about you, Mr. Kenshaw? Oh, I'm afraid that I fainted or something silly like that. I'm not a very strong person. Well, it was probably the gunshot, all right. Nothing very mysterious about it. The gun belonged to young Hardiker, licensed in his name, and had only his own fingerprints on it. Well, maybe I shouldn't ask, but why did he do it? The official verdict is suicide while of unsound mind. He seemed all right. He talked to us perfectly sensibly just before it happened. Just goes to show. You never can tell, can you? Oh, he'd always been nervous and highly strong. We got that out of his father. The strain of being down in that black pit was just too much for him, that's all. Oh, what, what a terrible thing. To break down just as we were about to be rescued. Yeah, it's too bad. Boys seem to have everything to live for, too. But we find that sort of thing all the time. The the noise, I suppose. I've read of cases of nervous breakdown caused by noise. Yeah, that's it. Well, I guess I don't need to keep you gentlemen any longer. Well, I'm certainly glad there were no complications. Oh, don't worry. If one of you had anything to do with it, you'd be back in the cell right now. <laughs> That was almost a year ago. Last week, each of you received a phone call from me. I can well understand and sympathize with the fact that you were somewhat astonished, perhaps a little suspicious of what you heard. I don't doubt that most of you debated at some length in your minds the advisability of accepting my invitation at all. You, for instance, Mr. McKenzie, you are married, as I remember. I imagine that you talked quite seriously with your wife about the whole affair. I phoned your home, I believe, at about... 8.30 last Monday evening. Yes? Uh, this is Mr. McKenzie speaking. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't seem to place you. Oh, oh of course, Mr. Hardigan. Well, frankly, I don't see the point. You don't know me, and I don't know you. Yeah? Yeah, I, I see. Well... All right, Mr. Hardiker. I'll be there. Huh. That's a funny name. Who was it, dear? His name is Hardiker. The father of that boy who killed himself in the elevator last year. Oh? Well, what did he want? <laughs> he wants me to come to dinner with him on Saturday at his home. Why, how lovely. He's a very important man, isn't he? Did he ask both of us? No. As a matter of fact, he's asking the four men who were in that elevator with his son when he, when he died. What a strange idea. Seems sort of, sort of gruesome to me. Yeah, that's what I thought. Didn't he say anything? Oh, he said quite a lot. Well, what did he say? I was just thinking. Oh, now please, Stephen, don't sit there and be so tantalizing. What did he say? Well, he said something about his son's estate. Seems his son had quite a lot of money in his own right. The old man said he didn't need it, and there weren't any other relations. And well, he. Sort of hinted that he thought it might be a good idea to split it up between the four men who were with his son in his last moments of life, as he put it. Why, Stephen, how wonderful. Why aren't you excited? How much is it? Do you suppose it's a lot of money? Mm, I don't know. Why, it might be several thousand dollars. It might be several hundred thousand dollars. Oh, Stephen, what's the matter with you? Well, just such a crazy thing to do, that's all. Don't see that that makes any difference. If a man wants to do a nice, kind, generous thing... Look, honey, if it was generosity, he'd give it to charity. If it was a sort of memorial to his son, he'd, well, he'd set up a scholarship or build a hospital or something. Well... The old man was pretty broken up about it when it happened. I remember reading something about his being in a sanitarium for a while afterwards. And he never did believe the verdict of suicide. The police as much as told us that at the time... How do I know he doesn't think one of us killed a boy? Oh, that's absurd. All right. But anybody who's crazy enough to divide up a wad of dough between four perfect strangers is crazy enough to think a perfect stranger killed his son. Oh, why, that... Maybe he thinks we all did it. Maybe he's wacky and has some crazy idea about revenge and is going to use the dough as bait to get us all together. I haven't thought of it like that. Perhaps you ought not to go. I already said I would. Why, anyway, maybe it's on the level. Stephen, do you still have that gun you used to have when you worked at the bank? Yeah, I have it there. I think you ought to take it with you Saturday night. Honey, I think you've got something there. 
I think that's a very good idea. And so, gentlemen, I'm quite gratified that you all saw fit to accept my rather unique invitation and that we are all here together this evening. Uh, by the way, Mr. McKenzie, I'm afraid I must ask you to give me that gun that you brought along. So that's it. And, uh, Mr. McKenzie, you will notice that one of my servants who is standing in the door directly behind you has uh, got you covered, is the phrase, I believe. Mm. Oh. Okay. Thank you. How did you know? Why, the butler sort of patted all your pockets when he removed your coats, but aside from that, I've spent most of my waking hours during the past year looking into the backgrounds of all you gentlemen. So I was right about this setup after all. Now, look here, Mr. Hardecker. I came here tonight in perfectly good faith. I even canceled a very important business appointment. With Mr. Joseph Donahue of Celluloid Products. Yeah. All right, let's cut out the mystery. What's this all about? Yes, really, what's Mr. the idea? No, wait a minute. One moment, gentlemen, one moment. But I... I didn't ask you up here under false pretenses. I fully intend to divide my son's estate precisely as I suggested over the phone. I sincerely hope you don't resent my investigation of your backgrounds. Well, gee, Mr. Hardecker, I... My background isn't much, I guess, but... Uh, Perhaps we all owe you an apology, Mr. Hardecker, but you must admit the whole thing's been a little strange. It has indeed been very strange. I think, however, that that phase of the matter is about over. Now, before we get down to business, there is one detail that I'd like you to help clear me up. Why, well, sir. Sure, we'll be can I, uh, can I bring it in now, sir? If you please. Uh, is it well mixed? Yes, sir. The, the, in the center of the table. Thank you, Johnson. Now, please see that we are not disturbed on any account whatsoever. Yes, sir. Say, <laughs> that looks good. What is it? Oh, it's got quite a number of things in it. White of egg, mustard, milk. <laughs> it sounds like an antidote for poison. It is an antidote for poison. A what? Gentlemen, there is a murderer in this room. One of you killed my son and hasn't paid for it yet. Oh, don't be a fool. The coroner's verdict was suicide. This is not a discussion, Mr. McKenzie. This is an execution. I, I'm, I'm getting out of here. There is a man with a gun outside each door. You'll find them very unreceptive to that idea, Mr. Prendergast. Sit down. He's got us. Well, I... The only thing we can do is try to talk a little sense I'm not open to arguments, Mr. McKenzie. One of you killed my son. I know who that man is. Taken me a year to find out, but I now know. The food that man ate tonight was poison. Yeah, now, but... In ten minutes... He'll drop dead. You can't take the law into your own hands that way. You're, you're Unfortunately, the law demands a very specific type of evidence. The police, whom I consulted repeatedly, do not believe it possible to get a conviction on the evidence I have. And therefore, the conviction must come tonight. Well, you wouldn't dare. You couldn't kill a man in cold blood that way. There is an alternative, Mr. Prendergast. Hmm? It is there in the center of the table. The antidote. Oh. The murderer may either confess his crime by drinking the contents of that bowl, or he may keep silent and go to his death here tonight, privately executed for what cannot be publicly proved. But they could send you to the chair for that. I am quite aware of that contingency, Mr. Crenshaw, and quite willing to accept the consequences. But the murderer will have gone to his death before me. How do we know you poisoned the right... The murderer knows, Mr. Prendergast. The rest need have no fear. Hey, I think the guy's crazy. Maybe he poisoned all of us. Look, Mr. Hardiker, this whole thing is insane. Nobody killed your son. As to that, we shall shortly see, Mr. McKenzie. The man who killed my son has approximately uh, seven minutes to live. Seven minutes? It's me. I know it's me. He's poisoned. My whole insides are on fire. It's I me. Don't poisoned. fall for it unless you're sure. Whole thing may be a gag. I assure you, nothing has ever been more serious, Mr. McKenzie. You know, you know, I, I don't feel so good myself. Neither do I. Probably just indigestion. After dinner, a story like this is enough to give indigestion to a horse. No kidding. Hey, supposing this guy's a maniac. Suppose he just made it all up in his own head and poisoned all of us. Listen, Mr. Hartigan. Let me just tell you this. If I come out of this alive, I'm going to beat your brains out of it. It's the last thing I, I do. I can't stand it. Mr. Hardecker, 
I didn't do it. I swear I didn't. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Five more minutes. Hey, I feel awful. Maybe we all ought to take some of that stuff, just in case. Yeah, that's it. We'll all take it. Yeah. Who'll take it first? Unfortunately, gentlemen, there's only enough antidote for one. Even if you're right, Hardiger, this is no way to do... This is my way. You're crazy, I tell you, crazy! Perhaps. Have you a son? Look! Kenshaw! Will it save me? Well, gentlemen, now you know... All right. All right, what do I care? I killed him. And I do it again. I hated him. Hated him. All my life. In school, in college, he never even knew that I existed. He was too good for someone like me. And he had everything. Money, everything. And he married the girl that I loved. She didn't know how I felt. I, I never told her. And then... Then she died. Pneumonia, they said. She wouldn't have died if she hadn't married him. So I killed him. I, I saw him get into the elevator. And then it fell. It fell. It was as though God had delivered it into my hand. It came to me there in the dark. I, I choked him. I choked him and then... Then he got out his gun, and I put my hand over his, and I turned it against him, and fired. But I, I, I'm glad that. I'm glad. Look, you. Help him, somebody. Help him. Here. Hold up his head. Here. Never mind. He's dead. He. It, it didn't work in time. You killed him, Hardiker. No, I didn't. I tell you, he's dead. Yes, I know. But what he drank was not the antidote. It was the poison. Poison? You see, I didn't exactly know which of you killed my son. I only knew that one of you must have. And so Robert Kenshaw convicted himself in front of all of you and was his own executioner. But then... He was never poisoned at all until... Until he drank the contents of that bowl. Gee. I shall divide the estate, gentlemen, as I promised. Meanwhile, you may call the police if you like. Let the law and divine providence decide whether this man died by my hand or by the guilt that lay upon his own soul. So closes After Dinner Story by Cornell Woolrich, starring Otto Kruger. Tonight's tale of Suspense. This is the man in black who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week, same time, when our star will be Gene Lockhart in the suspense play called Statement of Employee Henry Wilson. Producer of Suspense is William Spear, who tonight also directed the broadcast, and who with Lud Gluskin and Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, and Robert L. Richards, the radio author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. Make a note on your calendar that beginning December 2nd, Suspense will come to you on Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Wartime. 7 p.m. Central Wartime and 6 p.m. Mountain Wartime. Remember, Suspense will be heard on Thursday nights beginning December 2nd. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. J.P. told me he has a massive crush on the Lipton Tea Lady. Welcome back to Ricky Jin's Old Time Radio. Now enjoy this episode of Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, entitled The Paper Bullets. 
William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. The old saying, early to rise, folks, can't possibly mean a thing to a corpse. Your Pontiac dealer presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. The trick in continuing on as a confidential investigator is to keep on good terms with the police. Comes time for your license renewal and a department sawhead can louse it up for you. Play footsie with a corpse, conceal evidence, rack up as many black marks as you must, but be sure you've got a friend somewhere in the higher echelons. I say like a lieutenant willing to countersign your renewal application where it reads character references. Ah, the fool that I am, Craig, endorsing your application. Your signature goes down here, Trav. No blotting now. Right neat. Certifying you as a man of good character. However, will I atone for the perjury? The guilt get too much for you. I can refer you to a high bridge. Okay, I've signed. You're free to harass and otherwise misuse and abuse me for 12 more months. I'm looking forward to it, chum. I'd start in right away if I had a case. Oh, don't tell me the great man's idle. One meal away from pouring my badge. Unless you've got an idea. I get the hint. Even if I could, why should I throw anything your way? Because you hate seeing me fall dead from hunger. So what case did you have in mind? Two cases. You even have a choice. Hmm. Both of them prefer a confidential operative to official police methods, official notoriety. I was asked to recommend someone. I'm all ears. Case one. A Mrs. Cora Talbot wants help in finding her husband, Stanley Talbot. Talbot's been missing more than six years. What's her motive in looking for him now? Oh, a last-ditch search. She's about lost hope that he'll ever return. She wants the petition to have him declared legally dead so she can remarry. Interesting? How big a fee? Twenty dollars a day in expenses. Kind of anemic. It's all the lady can afford. Is it no? What's my alternative? A publisher named Hillary Grayson... He ran a best first novel contest, $50,000 to the winner. And? The prize-winning manuscript was stolen, very mysteriously. What's it worth to Grayson to get the manuscript back? A flat $2,000. So, which of the two has you seething with a desire to see justice done? Well, I don't want to be mercenary. Ah, then you'll accept Mrs. Cora Talbot. I'll call and tell her. Call and tell publisher Grayson. It's not on account of the higher tab. The fact is, I've been a long time wanting to raise my cultural level. The publisher, Grayson, had more body than any one guy needed. Three sets of jowls and thick eyeglasses. Looking into his eyes was like watching fish in an aquarium bowl. Get that manuscript back, Mr. Craig. Spare no effort or expense. If the manuscript isn't recovered, I'll be the jackass of the publishing world. I, I Hold on a minute, Grayson. You're forgetting I don't know what it's all about. I just got here. Yes. I suppose I should give you the facts. It would be helpful. The prize-winning book manuscript, The Cry of the Hyena, by Eric Trent, was stolen right out of my office. That's bad? Catastrophic. It was the only copy in existence. The author has no carbon duplicate. How come? Writers usually make copies. Usual writers usually do. But this is no usual writer. This is Eric Trent. Yeah, here's his photograph. Hmm. I get what you mean by this one not being usual. Does he always wear chin whiskers? Yes. Trent's a brilliant eccentric. A man who's roamed every corner of the world. A wanderer who wrote one page here, another page there. Six years in the writing and more than a thousand pages. And no carbon. First prize was $50,000? Yes. Were there other awards? One other. $5,000, a second prize. Won by? Oscar Sachs for his novel, Four Devils and a Midget. Oh, this is a photograph of Oscar Sachs. Well, this one's clean-shaven. 
Uh, can I talk out of turn, or are you the sensitive type? Ask me whatever you like. $55,000 in prize money. Isn't that a lot of cabbage for a... For, for a, a small publisher? Your offices haven't exactly got that mahogany and chromium look. The prize money doesn't really come from me. It doesn't? An independent motion picture company, Pyramid Pictures. They pay the prizes in exchange for world rights to film the book. Any more questions? Yes. How many offices are there in this suite? Six. Why do you ask that? I'm already in there pitching for you. That intercommunications box on your desk. Is every office equipped with one? Yes, of course, but I don't... The box is switched on, as you'll notice. It's been on through this whole talk we've just had. Who in the Grayson Publishing House would be interested in a uh, uh, long-range eavesdropping? I don't know. Suppose I find out. But I didn't find out. The eavesdropper resented my curiosity with all his might. An inkwell pitched at me. Ladies and gentlemen, have you driven a great new 1952 Pontiac? Until you do, you cannot possibly appreciate what Pontiac's dual-range performance really means. Only with your own hands on the wheel, your own foot on the accelerator of a Pontiac, can you know what it means to select with a flick of a finger exactly the power you want. Tremendous get-up-and-go in traffic, or smooth, easy-going, gas-saving cruising on the open road. The great new Pontiac gives you this kind of performance because Pontiac has, for the first time, combined the three essentials of top-flight performance in one great car. First, a terrific high-compression Pontiac engine. Second, the wonderful new General Motors dual-range hydromatic drive. Third, Pontiac's new high-performance economy axle. It's this great powertrain which makes dual-range performance giving you exactly the power you want, when you want it, where you want it. Remember, only the new Pontiac has dual-range performance. Only your Pontiac dealer can show you this engineering masterpiece. Before you consider any new car, be sure you visit your nearest Pontiac dealer. See the new Pontiac. Drive it yourself. You won't be very many miles down the road before you heartily agree that dollar for dollar... You can't beat a Pontiac. And now, back to Barry Craig. My eyes opened on Grayson, sprinkling water on me with a sponge. You're all right. Quit watering me. I'm not a petunia, Ben. But you were unconscious. I'm conscious now, and you're ruining my suit. It's ruined anyhow. The ink from the inkwell. Don't tell me. Red ink yet. My fee's gone up, Grayson. Up. Two thousand plus forty-nine seventy-five. The price of this suit. A while later, on the street outside the Grayson offices, a motorist tooted me over. A long hair driving a sky-blue pink jalopy. I let him pick me up. You paging me, friend? Uh, yes, I I'd like to talk to you. What about? Uh, if you'll get in, we can go somewhere. I'll buy you a drink. Oh, buttermilk. There's a buttermilk bar over on 8th Avenue. <laughs> Buttermilk Bar, we had a chat for the books. I'm Oscar Sachs. I know that. I saw that photograph of you in the Grayson Publishing Offices. Oh? Well, there's some facts about the book contest I think you should know. Why? Why? You, you've been engaged by Mr. Grayson to locate Trent's missing manuscript. What am I wearing? A sandwich sign? I obtained the information through sources I cannot disclose. Give me those facts. I won the second prize of $5,000, but I was cheated. Cheated out of the big money, is it? Yes. Explain, please. The contest rules clearly specified that the award was to be made only to an American author. And? I have reason to believe Eric Trent is an Englishman. Or anyhow, other than an American. Uh, to put it bluntly, a fake who should be disqualified. Disqualified while you're moved up to first place and $50,000? Yes. 
Let's have your bill of particulars. Well, for one thing, Trent's way of talk. It's as English as the House of Parliament. Uh, another thing, Trent was somewhere overseas on a tramp island in English possession when he sent the manuscript in. That summarizes it? Well, there's more. Trent has a tattoo on his right arm. I happened to get a good look at it. It's a tattoo of the British flag. Would an American wear the British flag on his arm? They tell me Benedict Arnold did. You really ought to grab yourself 50 Gs. Well, why do you find that so odd, Craig? Just that I thought artists had no money sent. Well, I have, and I'm not apologizing for it. Okay, I've got your point of view, Oscar. Oh, yes, one little thing remains. Hold out your hands. Uh, hold out do my... Do what Papa asks. Red ink smudges on your right thumb. You've been playing with inkwells, Sonny. Oh, Craig, I didn't mean... Uh-uh, don't apologize. Fun's fun. And I like to play myself. My interest runs to sugar bowls. Oh, Craig, no! No! Oh. Eric Trent's address, furnished me by Grayson, was a rickety studio walk-up. Seventh Heaven in Bohemia, Greenwich Village. The door opened on a blonde who eyed you as if she was already counting your money. Hiya. Hello. This is 6D, isn't it? That's what it says on the door. It's my astigmatism. Is Eric Trent in? No, but I am. Baby, I'm not a gentleman caller. So whose tough luck would you call it? Come in. Trent said for you to wait if you simply had to see him. Trent expected me? Yeah. That Mr. Grayson, the publisher, he phoned and said you might be over. You're Barry Craig, the detective, he said. Uh, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. I'm Judy. Judy Joy. Well, come on in. I won't bite you. I was waiting for you to make that promise. I live right next door in 6E. I come in here to play the radio. Mine's out of order. Oh. That's Bummy Fiegelspan's orchestra you're hearing. Oh. It's on every day this hour. Mm-hmm. I get simply dilapidated if I miss hearing Bummy. Come again. Did you say dilapidated? Yeah. Dilapidated, like frazzled. You know, fractured. Or were you correcting me on the words? Oh, no, no. Eric's always correcting me on the words. Imagine me keeping company with a real live author type. Sure I can. I can even imagine 50,000 reasons. Huh? What'd you say? Oh, there's Eric now. Eric? Ah, oh, Judy. On the sofa's Barry Craig, the investigator. I've been keeping him here for you. Thank you, Judy. Now, if you'll leave us alone. Sure. I've got to slip the press anyhow. Nice meeting you, Mr. Craig. I was flawed myself. Excuse me while I shut off the musical background. Now, Mr. Craig, the object of this visit? Your stolen brainchild, what else? But what can I do about it? I submitted it in good order. I'm not responsible for its disappearance. How come only one copy? Why didn't you type up a carbon duplicate? I have no patience with purely clerical details. I'm an artist. But the full risk of losing the one copy. I'm a man who takes risks, Craig. In my years abroad, away from America, I've lived a life of risks. Skip the personal build-up. Wherever I went, I traveled lightly. Suit on my back, pipe tobacco, and a pencil. It was enough of a nuisance carting one copy of a thousand pages around. And how was I to know my confounded book would ever get to a publisher, much less win a prize? Okay for that. What's your, uh, guess on the missing manuscript? Grayson. What motive? A stump. Grayson intends exploiting this whole affair for all the publicity he can wring out of it. It's an angle. The 50,000. Would you say you, uh, won it legitimately? Legitimately? I mean, uh, what if you were to be disqualified as the first prize winner, say on a technicality? What technicality? Not actually being of American origin, as the contest rules specify. But I am an American. With a British accent? <laughs> I spent years in the islands in Jamaica and British Samaritan. I'm told you have a tattoo of the British flag on your right arm. So? Well, I sailed the seven seas, and like a sailor, I had myself decorated with tattoos. But the British flag on an American citizen. Ah, wait until I open my shirt. There. Are you looking at the tattoo on my chest, Mr. Craig? Yeah, 
The American Eagle. What do you know? Expand your chest, genius. Expand my... I want to see old Baldy flap his wings. The first break in the case developed over the phone. I was in my office, soaking my feet. Barry Craig speaking. Hey, this is Grayson. What gives? It's about the stolen manuscript. Listen carefully. Shoot. A hoodlum named Mike Kelsey got in touch with me. He admitted to stealing the manuscript. Why did he? A mistake, he says. He was under the impression that it was valuable. A rare manuscript. <laughs> Believe that. He wants to return it now and no questions asked. How much loot is he after? $1,000. It's paying ransom, compounding a felony. I must have the manuscript back, Craig. I told him to negotiate the transfer through you. You're representing me in the matter. Where's the thousand? I'm sending the money over to you in cash by messenger. You're to meet this Mike Kelsey in the tavern. The flying horse. Pray, be discreet. Sure, sure, I'll be discreet. The cash came by messenger, okay. And I got to negotiate in the flying horse tavern. A mug with heavy artillery bulging his coat, waiting at a table for me. You Mike Kelsey? No, I'm, uh, McGuire. I'm here for Mike. Hey, you're negotiating for Grayson, so I'm here negotiating for Mike Kelsey. Now, let's negotiate without any monkey business, Craig. Why a gun under both armpits, Buster? So as I don't develop a stoop on one side? Oh. Now, here's your manuscript. Right in the wrapping Mike Kelsey found it in. Now count me out a fast grand. Here, $1,000. Count it yourself. It seems okay. Uh, Don't be stupid enough to stop me from leaving. The publisher, Grayson, was out. Would I please call later, a secretary told me. I'd gone back to my office to cool my heels for a while when the phone rang. Barry Craig speaking. Craig, this is Oscar Sachs. Now watch your beef. Craig, I've discovered something I think you'll want to know. Something that will promote you into the 50 G's? Something that won't help Barry Trent any. Craig, the man's a fraud. You're playing a cracked record, Junior. Am I? Come hear me out and then tell me that. All right, I'll come hear you out. As soon as I dry my feet and rustle up a change of socks... I didn't get to hear Sachs out. To achieve that, I'd first have to perfect a way of communicating with the dead. I left Oscar Sachs as I found him, sprawled backwards over a writer's desk, a knife standing vertically in his Adam's apple. I left him as is, so Lieutenant Trav Rogers wouldn't howl to heaven and the D.A. that I'd once more tampered with a corpse. Grayson drooled with joy supreme over the recovered manuscript. This is a load off my mind, Craig. A big load. But it sounds nothing. Who stole it and why? And why was Sachs murdered between the time he phoned me and the time I got to his flat? I'll show you the manuscript, Grayson, and then I've got a question. Here. Examine it and then tell me. Is this the same manuscript that was stolen? The same? Why, sure it is. The Cry of the Hyena by Eric Trent. Examine the manuscript, not just the title page. Study a few sample pages. Yeah. It's the same. You'll swear to that? On a stack... No. No, I won't swear. You've detected something? Some changes? Yes. I think yes. For one thing, this copy is cleaner. The edges of the pages aren't so ragged from handling. As you remember them to have been. Yes, even the title page looks altered now. I remember a burn here in the upper right corner near the author's name. A burn like from an accidental cigarette ash. I'm convinced. This isn't the copy that was stolen. But what can it mean? I aim to find out. Grayson. Yes? Phone Eric Trent. Get him to come here to your office on some pretext. But why? 
so I can have the run of his studio without Trent being the wiser or being present. Eric Trent had all the accumulated junk of a guy with a passion for changing climates. Souvenirs from Bombay, the Dutch Indies, Labrador. Souvenirs in brass, carved ivory, porcelain. And in the bottom bureau drawer, a manuscript. The Cry of the Hyena, with a cigarette burn on the title page. Eric Trent had stolen his own manuscript. I had the evidence in hand, but keeping it wasn't going to be so simple. A lady was against it. A lady healed with a gun twice the size of her dainty, lotioned hand. Miss Judy Joy. Yes, Mr. Craig. Miss Judy Joy. Through the, uh, convenient connecting door? I heard noises in here, and I made it just in time to catch a burglar. Drop that manuscript. You charm me into it. Want a word of advice, beautiful? No. I thought you would. Ring off Eric Trent as fast as you can flick your glamorous eyebrows. You're crazy. Being true to Trent's an awful waste of war paint now. What are you trying to tell me? That Trent's value on the hoof has just been slashed by about $50,000. He... He won't get the money? Neither will you get the money. You're a liar. The Dutch uncle. I'd hate to see you dragging your gorgeous chassis up the river Sundays visiting ye author in the big house. Pour me a drink. Still making with the gun? Aimed at your head while we wait for Eric. The stuff's on that coffee table there. The soda bottle's right alongside it. Okay, I'll play bartender. Say when? When? How much soda? Just a squirt. That's enough. Spot more, huh? Just enough to dampen your spirits? Had enough? She's no good. Move down. <laughs> held an all-night session, me, Lieutenant Trav Rogers, and Grayson, comparing the two manuscripts page for page. It was early dawn before I found a discrepancy between the two versions. You found something, Craig? Yes, Trav. A Cora Lane's disappeared from the substituted version. Who's Cora Lane? Tell him, Grayson. Cora Lane is a character who appears early in the novel. A woman the hero meets... Falls in love with. She's in version one. She's out of version two. Now, why would the author go to all the trouble he did? Submitting a manuscript and then stealing it back just to write a character out of the book. Because the name Coraline means something. Something he didn't want found out. Means what? Coraline was a character, say, uh, drawn from real life. She's a real name, a real person somewhere. Excuse me, Mr. Craig. They're saying that Trent only realized it when it was almost too late to make the change. One thing's pretty clear to me, Grayson. Eric Trent didn't write the book. Somebody else did. Who would you say did write the book, Craig? The hero of the story is my guess. Stanley Fields. Only that name is probably an invention or Eric Trent would have changed it. It figures the book is an autobiographic work. A man's true personal history disguised as fiction. The personal history of someone Trent stole the manuscript from. Someone now dead, or Trent would never have dared to try for the big prize. Tram? Yes. Arrest Eric Trent. Book him for the murder of Oscar Sachs. You're sure? Sachs tumbled to some of the truth, and Trent shut him up. Trent was also behind the Mike Kelsey red herring. That was a trick to throw dust in our eyes. Arrest Trent, Lieutenant. And when that little chore's over, check police files and directories for a Cora Lane. Go to it, Trav. On this one, I'm making you a gift to the headlines. Ladies and gentlemen... When a great reporter wants to get the inside story of a great new car, he gives it a thorough test run. That's exactly what John Daly did with the new Pontiac. Here he is to tell you some of the outstanding facts of the new 1952 Pontiac and its spectacular dual-range performance. This is John Daly to tell you about a great advancement in automobile performance. 
the great new 1952 Pontiac with spectacular new dual-range performance. A number of factors contribute to this sensational new kind of driving. Pontiac has combined a powerful high-compression engine, new dual-range hydromatic drive, and high-performance economy axle into an amazing powertrain that gives you tailor-made performance. At the touch of a finger, you can have tremendous acceleration and get up and go for any occasion. With equal ease, you can choose a different type of performance, quiet, economical cruising for the open road. Drive the new 1952 Pontiac with dual-range performance on display at your Pontiac dealer now. It's spectacular new proof that dollar for dollar you can't beat a Pontiac. The great new 1952 Pontiac with dual-range performance is on display now at your nearest Pontiac dealer. See it. Drive it as soon as you can. And now, back to Barry Craig. It took two days for Trav to get back to me. When he did, he had a lady with him. A gray lady with haunted eyes. This is Cora Lane, Craig. Cora Lane, Barry Craig. Mr. Craig. How do you do? How did you find her, Trav? Police files. The name of Cora Lane appeared on an old record card. She reported her husband missing some years back. Stanley, my husband. He left one morning, never returned. I was frightened. I, I imagined him injured, a traffic victim. I didn't know then that my husband had planned to just disappear. That he couldn't live in my world. That he had so much wanderlust. Her husband was the Stanley in the book. The author of it, as you theorize, Craig. Your husband was a writer? Yes. The writer all through him. Foolish, wild, irresponsible, and, and wonderful, too. Is he dead? Tell her, child. Yes, he's dead. Oh. According to Eric Trent's confession, your husband died of a tropical disease somewhere in the Pacific. Eric Trent was a drifter your late husband had taken up with. An odd thing, Craig. What odd thing? I offered you one of two cases the other day. Why bring that up now? You took one, but you solved both. Uh, what? Cora Lane is the maiden name of Mrs. Stanley Talbot. Mrs. Cora Talbot. Not the $20 a day in expenses deal I passed up. Yes. As it turned out, you found her missing husband. Hmm, a great lady, Trav, and all-around loser. Her life hasn't been good. Her life needs fixing. Mrs. Talbot? Yes, Mr. Craig. We're taking a ride, you and me. A ride? Cross town. You've been poor, but now you're rich. That book of your husband's, The Cry of the Hyena, there's $50,000 coming to you, and I'm going to stand over Grayson while he makes out that check. Good night, folks. See you next week. listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, The Paper Bullets, was written by John Robert. Next week, it's the strange story of death and the purple cow, about which Barry Craig has this to say. Next week, I lose a client before I get him. A man dies in a hamburger joint. And a purple cow turns out to be neither a cow nor purple. See you next week, folks. Featured in the role of Judy was Barbara Weeks. Barry Craig, starring William Gargan, was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is Don Pardo speaking. Now enjoy Meredith Wilson's Music Room on NBC. Thank you 
for listening to Ricky Jin's Old Time Radio. Join us again next week at the same time on the mighty KONR. Don't forget to play What Will Mrs. Thompson Say at LGAP.com. Now, stay tuned for the Sam Squatch Report. Thank you.